Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. For this podcast, I got to sit down early one morning in the quietest space I could find, an eerily appropriate cavern deep in the bowels of the Abbey Theatre with award-winning writer Emma Donoghue. So far, so roomy, just to set the scene. In this podcast, Emma talked to me about rethinking her best-selling novel Room in theatrical terms, the thrill of collaboration and the white heat of scene-changing deadlines. We talked about big families, excellent parents, queer content and fairy tale foundations. Emma spoke about home places, away places, labels, success, retrospective insults and the pure bliss of writing something that moves somebody else. Enjoy this podcast. So welcome Emma Donoghue. Thank you, nice to be here. I know, in the, the salubrious uh, venue, I had hopes that we would be recording in the control room, looking over the, the set of your play, but we are in an appropriate enough It's deeply venue. appropriate. It's, it's even tinier than the space in room. It's, it's a little dungeon, basically, a tiny little dungeon. I'm pleased we don't have a little key code pad or something to get in and out, but... I, I rest assured that that door will get out of here anyway. But you know, minutes. I've been working on the story of Room for so long that at this point, everything reminds me of Room. I was thinking the poor actors last night, you know, they're doomed to replay this night after night. I mean, I know it's the, it's the career they've chosen, but the rest of us get to experience the play and then go home. And for yeah. them, it's, you know, they're locked into the repetition. But you must be living in that room for the best part of 10 years now. <laughs> well, I suppose I started writing it when um, my kids were one and th- so it's about nine years the story's been in my head, yeah. But the great thing about doing the play is that it's such a collaboration. You know, um, all the music is new, for instance, and so not only are the actors adding a fresh take on everything, but to the music and the design, it feels as if this is really a rethinking of the whole story and it's it's not purely mine. So I feel far less ownership of the story than I used to. Okay, I was, I was going to ask you that um, because... I mean, you kept a firm and careful hand over Room throughout its incarnations. And so do you, because it's a theatrical piece now, do you feel less control because of that collaboration and that magical transaction that happens as an audience member as well? Yes. And, you know, to be honest, I felt the same thing with the film, that it's, it's not so much that I firmly controlled it. It's, it's not that I'm, you know, forbidding things. It's more like I love the process of adaptation. I've always been a writer who works in many genres and I've always loved drama in all its forms. So I just didn't want to be shut out of the fun of transforming Room into a film and then a play. Um, I just, you know, I wanted to be in on it. So especially with the film rights, I, I didn't let myself be shunted off to one side because I thought, you know, I, that would be enormously pleasurable as a challenge. Um, and the same thing with the play. It didn't occur to me to let anyone else do it. But on the other hand, once you're working with with other people and in particular with Cora and Catherine adding the songs to this production um, it feels immensely new and collaborative um, and, and you get far more relaxed about the ways in which the story changes um, because you're, you, you're trusting the people you're working with. The story changes in what way? Um, I would say each form has its own special gifts and it brings out new things in it. So I would say film is incredibly, can be incredibly naturalistic. You know, it can really fool the eye. You, you absolutely believe in the falling snow or, you know, the, the, the grotty um, floor in that room. Um, I don't know, the realness of something like um, when the boy has his haircut in the second half of the film. Of course it's all faked and it's wigs and so on, but a naturalistic film, you absolutely feel like you're living through it, so you believe in that, even more than in a book. A book has a great advantage that there's time to say every little thing, so in the book we get Jack's thoughts at enormous length. But as soon as I thought about room for theatre, I thought, oh, in some ways that's a whole other angle, because theatre is so... um, it's so playful and improvisational. 
So that really brings out the aspects of the story which are all about play, you know. Really, the story is about the triumph of play over imprisonment in that the mother and child could be just sitting there like depressed prisoners all day, but because the mother has this wealth of fun and love in her, she manages to transform that space through play and games and pretending that they have more agency over their lives than they really do. And that's theatre. So um, in some ways, uh, theatre is the form that suits room best. And I would say the play was able to really not feel that obligation to be naturalistic, but be very emotionally real instead. Using theatrical devices like, say, we have them... Um, uh, wonderful actor, adult actor playing Jack's kind of inner self. So, you know, having an adult and a child play the same character at the same time, it's, it's theatre at its best and, and the audience just go along with it. Yeah, because you are at the mercy of each form and, and, and how you get to tell your story through that form. And then room at the story at its heart is an absolute flight of imagination. It's so, it never dawned on me, obviously, that it would be a stage play or a play with music but it just fits because it is just a, the child's voice um, and, and the child's imagination. It just fits so well. And it's all about games and recurring games and, and sort of ritualising everyday life. And again, that's very theatre. So, you know, the, the child and mother have their patterns, like every day he leaps up and he runs around greeting every object. So when in the second half of the play, he's in his grandmother's house, which is all new and alien to him, and he's trying to make it his own by doing the same little gestures. So it's immensely moving. It's an, I, I veered away from the book, Emma, for ages because most of the time I don't invite what I think is dark material. Yes. I just, and I certainly was the only person in the cinema who, who hadn't read the book because I was panicking during that <laughs> red scene. But it is, it is so life-affirming, the novel, and it's so, it is, for me, like a, like a masterclass in, in, in how to overcome a struggle or how you can get salvation through routine and you can overcome adversity. I, I really found it so life-affirming. Well, you know, I read a lot of prisoners' memoirs. Um, there's a, a classic one um, by Albie Sachs, a uh, South African who was in prison there. Um, I read about sort of hermits and mystics and all sorts of people who were sort of shut away from the world but who found a kind of hallucinatory beauty to it. Um, I, I, I've never lived that way myself, you know, I'm very, very sociable from a big family, so it's it's a strange experience to me, but I was really interested in it, so I never saw it just as a crime story, you know, um, I always saw it as a story of, you know, how magic could happen in one room if there was enough, uh, you know, love there, enough, enough imagination, I suppose. Um, so, so to see it come to the stage, it's, it's, it's a, the completion of a journey for me, you know. Um, having it here, is there a significance having it at the Abbey Theatre? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, I am, you know, this was probably the first theatre I ever went to. I grew up on Abbey plays. Um, I remember as a student, someone brought me along to see um, uh, Stephen Burkhoff's, Burkhoff's production of Salome, and I loved it so much I came back the next night, you know. So I had some breakthrough theatre-going experiences here. And I always had a sense that the Abbey somehow had to represent Ireland, you know, which is quite a burden for it as an institution. But then to see to see Room ending up at the Abbey, um, you know, I, I feel like an Irish playwright more than I ever have, you know, so it's a wonderful experience. Do you remember the first play you saw, you saw here? I don't remember or the very it? first. My parents would have brought me to things quite regularly, the Abbey and the Gate, yeah. And I've had plays on here in Project Arts and the Andrews Lane Centre and so on. I've loved those experiences too, but there's just something about being at our National Theatre that makes me feel um, incredibly satisfied. Um, it occurs to me, obviously, that you can write a novel, the screenplay, and a stage adaptation. Would you be tempted to reverse that recipe and write a novel or a sc screenplay of any of those previous plays that, say, would have gone on in Project Arts back, back in the day? Um, 
it's funny, isn't it, how novel tends to come first and, and we all are slightly disdainful of the, the idea of a novelization. I think it's because a novel is the most detailed working out of a world, right? So if you then take that fully elaborate world and you um, streamline and choose just elements from it to dramatise, that feels like you're do doing something legitimate. Whereas just take a drama and turn it into a novel by sort of I don't know, adding all the extra details at that point, it would, it would feel a bit perverse for me. Um, but I've certainly done a lot of recycling in my time. Um, Orchie once uh, hired me to uh, write a, a, a one-off television show and then it got cancelled for reasons um, to do with internal Orchie scandal. <laughs> so I took that and turned it into a radio play and I've turned radio plays into short stories. So I've done a certain amount of, of you know, uh, reworking my, my materials. But I, you know... Ideally, I like to start with a novel if, if a story is going to be a novel at all. Yeah, so I spent, it's in the I spent years of it. beforehand sort of mulling over what should that be? Should it be a novel? Should it be a play? What, what's the form that, that is, is the best for it? Um, and Room is a funny one in that it, I think it works kind of equally well in all three forms. Um, I, I think because it's a story that you can play different ways, you can play it very sort of allegorically or you can play it very literally. Sorry. Well, with a few of my other books, I'm now turning them into films, um, but I, I prefer to move in that direction, yeah, because basically with a the film, there are far fewer scenes you show, far fewer words you use. It's, it's really a highly streamlined and not simplified, but pared down version of the story. So to me, it's good to start with the really richly detailed world of the novel first. Um. Of all those various forms, then what, whether it's poetry, short stories, writing plays, or writing screenplays, which of it, which of those forms, has made you become a better writer? Oh, good question. Um, I, I I tend to feel there's a discipline to each of these forms, and that you know only plays teach me how to write plays, and um, I feel a real newbie about films. You know, like quite often. Um, you know, a film director will use a phrase and I'm thinking, I must go off and look that up on Google, you know, <laughs> because I'm very new to that form. Um, I, I feel most experienced as a fiction writer and I think probably if I had to write just one thing, it would be fiction. But the thrill of collaboration in, in the dramatic arts, um, it gives me the most exhilarating experiences in my career. So um, I may not be quite as much sort of in charge or in control or, you know, feeling my skills in theatre or film, but on the other hand, I, I feel like I'm flying, you know, because uh, the sheer stimulus, especially is a, being in a rehearsal room, you never know what's going to come out of the day, you know, and you scurry home to write things and change things um, in that kind of white heat of, you know, they need these words by tomorrow, you know? I mean, there are, there are entire monologues in the room play that I remember I, I emailed to Cora late at night because she, she'd write to me, like, during the first preview, saying, it's taking ages for the set to fly on there. We need a speech for Big Jack. Just, you know, give me two paragraphs about the world, you know? <laughs> so some of them so never... you can write to demand like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly, well, because Jack's so in yeah. my head, I can see how he would see the world. Yeah, so the, the sheer thrill of other people needing my input and, and me benefiting so much from their ideas... Um, it all feels far more um, adrenaline-fueled than when I'm writing fiction, which is much more what my little quiet world. Okay. Um, tell us about your background. You mentioned you come from a big family. You're the youngest sure, of eight. Sure, the youngest of eight, yeah. What, what's the hierarchy or the gender balance uh, in that family? Roughly equal, three boys, five girls. Um, and I've only had two myself, but I still, you know, the, the big family still appeals to me as an idea. So I've been writing kids fiction recently, and my first book is about a family of seven kids and four parents. And I've really enjoyed getting into that sort of big family vibe again, you know. Um, growing up, would you have read what the older ones had lying around, or were you led down a certain path of 
of, you know, what, what to read, I think. Well, there was a lot of, you know, good quality literature on our bookshelves. Um, so, you know, I grew up being able to find the word M of, of the Jane Austen novel that I'd been named for, that kind of thing. But then under my siblings' beds, there'd be all that trashy fiction, like um, Princess, what was that book we all passed around? Princess, not Princess Grace, Princess something. Um, not you Princess know, Bride, not William No, Goldman, no, but... something, something sexier <laughs> so you know tattered paperbacks basically and then I, I went to um, um, Donnybrook Library and Stillorgan Library all the time and as my siblings grew up and left home they'd leave their library cards behind and so I'd go off to the library with you know five library cards three of them adult ones so I'd be able to borrow about 36 books so then I'd stagger home from Stillorgan Library with the plastic bags cutting through my fingers you know because I had such an appetite for books <laughs> and I read fairy tales a huge amount I was really very interested in spotting those kind of repeated mythological patterns what age then or what age did you grow or do, actually I guess in a way you've never grown out of fairy tales never really um I find that fairy tales and kind of biblical motifs pop up in, in just about everything I write you know they're kind of the the, um, the archetypal bones of our culture, you know. So even if it's not overt, um, I'm, I'm nearly always aware of the kind of, um, you know, what what the what what the myths behind any story I'm telling are, you know, whether it be a, a homecoming or a quest or, um, you know, a, an escape story, you know. And when I was writing Room, I thought a lot about stories like Rapunzel, for instance, you know, the, the idea of the walled-up virgin. Um, so. Yeah, I think fairy tales are probably the, 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 key, the key reading I did in my childhood. In your household, I'm sure there was a space made for art um, or for creativity, so you didn't really have that struggle of um, trying to make space for that or pursue that as a legitimate career. Am I right in thinking that, that because of your, your father Absolutely. My, my family were artsy. Now, you know, my mother was very sensible and she was a career guidance counsellor, actually. She got so good at advising her own teenagers that she... she took up careers guidance counselling and um, so she'd say things like yes you'll definitely be writing great now and maybe you'd be a lawyer as well you know or she I remember when I was choosing art subjects for my degree she, she persuaded me to put in economics you know in the hope that I'd have a solid job and then write on the side I don't think any of us expected I could earn a living at this I mean it still strikes me as an amazing fluke and um, the various writer societies of Ireland and England and Canada every now and then they, they issue a statement on average earnings for a writer you know paltry really really hard to make a living as a writer so I can't quite believe that I have and I think it's because I was lucky enough to get American publishers for my fiction from an early point because that's always been my main earner um, you know I've met prize winning writers who can't possibly live off what they write because of the countries in which they happen to sell better you know, so it's really based on, on the American sales then really did is. your confidence yeah. ever waver like was there a point that you thought I mean you've earned your keep since you know early 20s yeah um, no I never thought I wouldn't be able to earn my keep I was a bit my ego was a bit bruised when for a couple of books in a row I wasn't published in Britain and Ireland because your home country you know um, but I wasn't on the shelves in Waterstones uh, basically two books before Room didn't get published um, but what's funny is that one of them, um, a novel set in Victorian times called The Sealed Letter, you know, it got turned down by all the publishers in London and it was published fine in, in North America. And, but then after Room, my publishers picked it up and it was a big bestseller. So I remember thinking, hang on, this was like dog's dirt a few years ago and now you all want it. So your profile rose and <laughs> exactly. they just went back into the archives. Yeah, in our culture, you know, you, you need your name to rise, basically. And once your name has risen, then people will buy whatever has your name on the cover. Yeah. But it's also a good reason to write historical novels is that they don't date too fast. You, know? <laughs> you can twist them out of the bottom drawer. Um, you mentioned uh, your book for young adults or children. Uh, uh, really, lottery. 8 to 12 year olds, yeah, the lotteries plus, plus one. one. You dedicated that to your mum. Uh, uh, 
they say to understand yourself, you have to understand your parents. I'm going through, I'm thinking things through a lot recently, but did you always understand your parents? No, I wouldn't say so, but I would say they strongly marked me and they were excellent parents for me. Like they, they both uh, love books. My dad's a literary critic. My mum had been an English teacher before she was a guidance counsellor. So they both took, you know, books and the life of the mind entirely seriously. They never forced me to play sports or get out in the fresh air, you know. And, and actually, even though my dad is the most obvious influence in that, you know, I ended up loving English literature and he's published many books on that. And it was my mum who had a real interest in social history. And she was always saying, oh, look, a famine graveyard or, oh, let's go poke around in the kitchen at Rusper House. Um, so, so I would say she had a real interest in, you know, the lives of the ordinary. Um, which, she encouraged that curiosity. Yeah, which I would say has inspired a lot of my historical fiction. It's all the kind of, you know, how did they manage it by periods? You know, that kind of question. Um, so they both shaped me hugely. And um, my mum in particular, I dedicated the Lotteries Plus One to her because the kind of inciting incident in the book is that uh, an aged grandfather suddenly develops Alzheimer's and has to move in with this family of grandkids he doesn't know, doesn't like. Um, so um, my mum had got diagnosed with dementia seven years ago when um, I was starting to write that book and you know I've always found it immensely therapeutic to write about whatever is sad in your own life and my mum has always approved of this I mean she's been in previous books of mine and I remember her saying I used her as a, as a basis for a character who gets killed with an axe in um, 18th century Wales and she said to me oh I'm happy to help in the cause of literature so um, I know she'd be she'd be happy to inspire the dementia ridden grandfather in this one too because she was very witty about her dementia for the first few years you know she'd she'd sort of she'd say I came out to the window cleaner about my dementia <laughs> I love the way coming out has become this useful metaphor yeah. for anyone who wants to be honest about embarrassing things how is your mum now she's more in the cloud world I would say she's She's still going strong, but um, her sentences are sort of gibberish now. It's funny how long language lasts, though, you know. You, you can still sort of play out the rhythms of conversation in a very fond way, a very warm and sociable way, and it's exchanging all sorts of emotional information. There's just no actual content, you know. Yeah. So, um, which again is, again, is a bit like theatre, you know. It's like having a nonsense conversation between clowns, but it's still an exchange, you know. You mentioned about referencing your mum in some of your work. You say that you you don't write uh, biographically, um, you research, but is there any character in your work that you would think is closest to you or has a strain of you? I put a lot of myself into um, the point of view character in my second novel, Hood, um, Penn. She's a school teacher. She's, so she's sort of like, I used a lot of my adolescent memories of convent school and it was sort of like, how would it be if I had grown up but then gone to work at the same convent school and stayed in the closet, you know, stayed with my first girlfriend through all sorts of miseries? So it was kind of a, a terrible what if, yes, but I put a, a lot of her, um, there's a lot of me in her and, and all her jokes are mine, really. And that one has never sold well. <laughs> I really, uh, Hood was my first introduction to you. Um, oh, really? really? Yeah, um, I, I mean, just thinking Hood and Surfer were your first two novels, am I right? And so... You're, what, maybe early 20s then? Was yeah. that a, I yeah, think I it's a brave move to be writing about a coming of age for... for brave in some ways, but on the other hand, um, I did get attention and a contract from Penguin and so on. I think having any kind of label is actually quite helpful at first to separate you from the mass of unpublished writers. So, you know, it may have got me publicity even though it made some publishers turn me down. So I don't think on the, on the whole it was a disadvantage. I mean, this was the early 90s, so yeah. it was all more possible. Um, you know, if it was 1970, it might have been hard, but I can't really claim that I had to be brave, you know. 
And again, um, you know, doing publicity, I had the occasional sort of bruising encounter, um, but but mostly I would say the whole lesbian thing has, has got me more attention from my work. So okay. really no complaints. Um, you, know. you don't shy away from it? No, no. I do notice that when I write about things that don't have any lesbians in them, they sell better. <laughs> they don't. I was going to ask you, do you ever feel that you have a responsibility to throw in a few gay characters to keep the home fires? And not in every single book. It's more like... If I did five books in a row with no queer content, I'd feel a bit like, oh, you've strayed a long way from your from your origins. Yeah. You know, I would find that odd. I find it comes up sort of, you know, every every second or third book, you know, um, and so I just sort of let the story tell me what to do. But um, I would certainly never try to censor that stuff out. You know, you can't go courting sales. You can never tell what's going to sell. Um, so I prefer to just write whatever story I'm preoccupied with. You know, okay. um, but I certainly. I suppose I feel I like there to be a lot of queer content in my work as a whole, but I don't feel each individual um, work needs to have some sprinkled in, you know. It's funny. Um, well, I, I guess I was thinking about my introduction to your work, and I remember buying Hood in books upstairs opposite Did Trinity. Did you squirm as you handed over your money? I had to buy something else with it. <laughs> That's what it was. Was this illicit transaction? I just Do you burn. remember what else you did buy with it? No, I was trying to think. I would imagine it was something that was at the counter, like some sort of almanac or something. <laughs> and Moore's, oh, Moore's almanac, throw it in there. Oh, that's brilliant. To diffuse it. For me, you were a gay writer. That was my access point to the late 90s, early 2000s. And now you're Emma Donoghue, like, room. And you're just this, I guess for me, it was, it was something, it was, it was an illicit transaction in even buying one of your books back mean. then. What's nice is that the, the success of Room persuades people to take a punt on reading other books by me. So say, you know, The Lotteries Plus One, for instance, it's effectively about a gay couple and a lesbian couple having a lot of children. So the idea that this is now piled high in Eason's just thrills me because, you know, the mainstream success of Room has kind of given me a name that will, no, not guarantee sales of other books, but at least it, it sort of makes everything I write a little bit more acceptable and commercial, um, when otherwise it would have been, you know, the highly specialist gay fiction aimed at children, which wasn't even a category back then, you know, <laughs> it would have been seen as a crime. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's great fun that, you know, all my other books may sell a lot less than Room, but, but they certainly sell better because of Room, um, and somehow Room has made it more made me a little bit more of a household name, which really helps get people past their nervousness. It's not even that people feel overt homophobia, they just have a slight sense of, well, that book wouldn't be for me now. I mean, to some people, I'll always be an Irish writer, you know, to a lot of Canadians, I'm a Canadian writer, they wouldn't mm. even know I was Irish. So um, I'm happy enough with any of these labels, so long as, you know, none of them constrain me. You've lived uh, more time, I suppose, almost out of Ireland than you have it's in Ireland. True, I left at 20, went to England for eight years, and then I've been in Canada for about 20, yeah. But, you know, I'll always be more Irish than anything else. Yeah, is it, is it, is it easier to view Ireland from a distance? Like, I, I'd imagine, even up close, we're, we're small, but in, <laughs> far away, we're also small. I so enjoy my visits here, because especially with Dublin, you know, I get to come to Dublin, and it's so buzzy and sociable, and it's all, you know, scones and Queen of Tarts, and meeting friends, and high-speed conversation, and I, I, I love it. Um, but I probably shouldn't ever test that by spending too long here, you know, because yeah, the exactly. smaller aspects of the culture might begin to uh, squeeze. Um, you are an industrious writer. What are you trying to do as a writer? Are you trying to work something out for yourself, stretch the form, uh, make art? You know, it's funny, I know my characters are invented, you know, even if they're based on historical sources, but they feel like real people to me, so it almost feels like I have this obligation to these people in my head who can only reach the world through me. So, so it actually feels like an ethical responsibility to these characters. Um, 
which, I mean, does sound a bit like a mental illness now I put it that way, because clearly the characters have no other life except in my head. But once I've imagined them, I feel like I, I need to get them onto the page or onto the stage or onto the screen. Um, that's why it's a little bit dispiriting in the film world that many things you, you write and then they don't actually get filmed. And so, you know, those scripts just, just freeze there. They don't become what they're meant to be. This is why probably fiction is the most satisfying to me, because usually what I write in fiction gets published. Um, but yeah, it, it tends to feel like a, an obligation to the characters. And of course to the readers as well, you know, because the, the thing, the, the book, the play, the film doesn't really happen until that magical moment when um, my mind gets to meet all these other minds um, through the words. Um, so yeah, it feels like a series of relationships really. It's certainly not just me, myself, I. Um, yes, I'm working out problems, but mostly so that I can bring a story to the people. Okay. Do you write with an Irish accent. I seem to be dwelling on this whole Irish thing and, I, and no. actually it doesn't really even interest me because I just feel it's your writer, but do you write with an Irish accent and an Irish sensibility? I'm thinking your humour. Someone asked me uh, about Room and, uh, you know, are, are there Irish elements in it? And what occurred to me was just that it was, it was this streak of humour throughout it. Oh, good, good. That's a good angle. Um, some people have said it's very Irish and that it's all about a mammy and a child kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't say my sentences are always distinctively Irish. I certainly try not to have one set voice. I try and develop a voice that suits the story I'm telling. So if it's set in, say, my novel Frog Music is set in 19th century San Francisco, so I would say the voice is not identifiably Irish. I'm certainly very preoccupied with the parent-child relationship, and but, I mean, what culture is not? And um, I'm very interested in stories of emigration and people remaking themselves when they go abroad um, that tension between the home place and the away place and that's certainly been a, a big theme for the Irish um, and yeah the Irish put humour in everything I mean one reason I so loved working with an Irish company to make room the film um, element was that we, we, we just we cut through all that Hollywood gush we were constantly mocking each other you know like doing this sort of award circuit myself and, and Lenny Abramson and Ed Guiney we just constantly took the piss out of each other and that really helped keep it real you know because otherwise all that Hollywood stuff would go to your head you know I might get back to that Hollywood stuff but as you're talking there um, I have the sense of uh, Maeve Brennan and um, when did you come across her work do you know that's the only play I've written that somebody else asked me to write I had read maybe one short story of Maeve Brennan's and hadn't been particularly hooked I think I'd read The Visitor didn't particularly grab me. Um, and then Annabelle Cummins got in touch and had already been researching Maeve and she said, would you like to write a play about her? And I bristled. I remember thinking, you know, like, oh, I come up with my own projects. You know, I don't write to order. But then she sent me all Maeve's short stories and I read them um, en masse and got completely hooked. So, um, yeah, so, so it was really Annabelle who, who drew me into that. The idea that um, Maeve went over to America, Washington, I guess, you know, with yeah, her father. Yeah. And then the you had that year away at yeah, my dad New York. brought the, the three youngest of us and my mum to um, New York when I was nine and uh, my god the culture shock was incredible you know divorced people and black people you know I, I really felt shaken awake by, um, by that encounter so, so yeah I think, I think going to different countries is hugely good for a writer to make you realise how culturally specific all your sort of norms are you know um, so you always knew that you were going to be bigger and, and get a, I'd leave Ireland because I suppose you had that access point at the age of 10. You just saw I a bigger world. I probably did think that. And also growing up in Ireland in the 80s, you know, you were hoping to leave. It was <laughs> a bit of a grim place. And I, you know, the cultural events I remember were things like the, uh, the mass hysteria about the um, moving statues and the, uh, 
the anti-abortion referenda, two of them in a row. So I had a slight feeling of, get me out of here, you know. Um, and then once I realised I was gay, all the more so. Um, but even like all my siblings, most of us left too. So, um, so there was a general feeling of get a degree and get out of here. Now, I don't feel at all as harsh about Ireland now. Um, I don't, I'm not living away from Ireland by policy. It's just that, you know, fate took me. I fell for a Canadian. I've got Canadian kids now. Um, but I certainly, yeah, I, I did grow up wanting to sort of spread my wings a bit. Yeah. You mentioned the Hollywood factor. Uh, did you ever expect this level of fame? And also, are you, uh, are you comfortable with this kind of questioning? Are you, do you just get used to it? Like people, there's so much written about you out there, whether it's about your private life or, you know, about your work as well. But it just seems that they're always mining your territory for copy idea. Are you okay with that? I rarely mind. And um, the other day, my, my 10 year old and I were out at a, a kid's play and somebody tweeted a picture of us standing in the queue. And I really bristled at that because I didn't know he was taking the picture. I was with my child, you know, I, that felt invasive. But that kind of moment is so rare. You know, as a writer, you know, it's very difficult to be so famous that you're harassed by it. I mean, J.K. Rowling has this trouble, but the rest of us really don't. Um, so I'm, I'm, I don't feel that my life is too invaded. The publicity is just tiring cumulatively in that it takes up a lot of time and you, there's a lot of repetition. So, you know, this is quite an in-depth podcast, so it's a pleasure. Whereas what you do is an awful lot of brief interviews in which you're answering the same questions. And sometimes, like, if you've taken the trouble to set up a phone interview and if their first question is, so were you born in Ireland? You know, the temptation to snarl, Google me, is quite strong. Now, I never have. <laughs> I try and keep well-mannered. But, um, you know, interviews in big numbers can be very tiring. Um, so, yeah, it, it's funny with publicity, you, you always want more and more until the day you suddenly have a bestseller and then you're like, oh, no, too much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and also all the new publicity like social media or uh, being asked to guest blog, that kind of thing. It's as well as the old publicity. It's not like it's one or the other. You still have to go on book tours, you know. So it's more like while you're flying, uh, while you're, you know, connecting planes in Pittsburgh, you're meant to answer 20 questions by email for an online magazine. <laughs> you're very quick at getting back. I, I find it, I did picture you on your treadmill, you know, you know, or is that still going? Are you still I have, that? yeah, yeah, I, I still have it, yeah, for at least a few hours a day. Yeah, it's splendid. Um, well, sometimes it's like, you know, all the, all the demands for my career come at me like flies, you know, sometimes swatting each of them as fast as it arrives is the way to go. <laughs> they say that when, or at least actors and directors say, uh, when they're making a film, they get, they say they get paid uh, for the junket bit. The, the, the making the film is the pleasure and then uh, yeah, they get paid for that. Yeah, and often actors, by the time they're publicising a film, they can barely remember it, it's been years. <laughs> right, okay. And um, I wanted to wrap up, actually I wanted to ask you a question, um, which is one of those questions that is, I suppose, prying as well. Um, I came across a quote that was attributed to you about marriage and it says that you don't believe you can promise you can love someone forever. Has that changed for you? I'm, I'm personally squeamish or superstitious about it. Um, Chris and I are really lucky in that we've been together, oh my god how long has it been? Um, hang on, hang on. I think 24 years. Um, and and we, we've been through the, the big milestones of, you know, getting me emigrating to Canada, getting a house together, having two kids. So we did all this before they legalized same-sex marriage. So we never felt the need to then add a legal ceremony. And we're both a bit squeamish about you like know, superstitious or different. yeah just well I mean we're both feminists we both grew up on that sort of tradition of you know marriage is a is a plot it, you know it's for it's for men to own women and also so often marriage doesn't work we've all been to weddings and then they break up and you think okay 
was that like some magic spell we were all meant to believe in? You know, and then when you go along to the second wedding, you're thinking, are we meant to believe it this time? <laughs> I mean, you can wish someone well, and you could. I, I totally believe in long-term relationships and commitment, and it's not like you know either of us would leave quickly. You know, we're very committed. Um, in fact, we have a bit of a joke sometimes, you know, that if friends say to us, like, why aren't you married? We say, oh, we're so wild and bohemian and radical. Yeah, yeah, I can leave in the morning. <laughs> of course, we are effectively the same as married people, but I just prefer not to have actually signed on the line. But I might have felt differently if my civil rights had seemed to depend on getting it. Um, in Canada, they kind of doled out the civil rights early, right? So we were able to just declare ourselves as a same-sex couple and get a lot of legal protections early on. So that's why I never got passionately caught up in the fight for marriage. But of course, I was thrilled when Ireland legalised it. Um, so, you know, these things should be available to everybody. I think, you know, um, male-female couples should be able to get civil partnership as well. You know, the system should be, you know, gender neutral. Um, but it's just I've never wanted to do it myself. And partly I have so many moments in the public eye now. You know, Chris and I have had sort of red carpet um, photo sessions together, that kind of thing. So I, I don't feel that craving for one day to stand up in a beautiful dress, you know. Or to, to, to have it recognised. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. I feel, you know, we're written about in, in interviews and so on already. So I, I prefer, you know, the private life to stay private. Um, but, you know, I feel a lot better living in cultures where you can marry your girlfriend. I just haven't ever wanted to myself. I was thinking about it this morning. I was thinking whether I would ask you that, but yeah, yeah. it's um, there is something like about a, a promise. Like the promise, uh, once it's exposed to air, may not always, you know, <laughs> work. And, and also a piece of paper won't always, you know, And also, I'm just work. not sure I want my relationship to, to enter the kind of legal world of governments and forms and form-filling and all that. I like it being just the kind of... Bohemian you know, and wild. Yeah. No, that is... No, I'm kidding myself there, but I like it to be... I don't know, voluntary. <laughs> you know? Uh, last question. Mm -hmm. uh, what does success mean to you? The funny thing is, um, since, since the, the, the success of Room, people often kind of retrospectively insult me by saying like, there you were toiling away in obscurity all those years, struggling to make ends meet as a writer, and now at last you're successful. And I think, fuck off, <laughs> I was perfectly successful. <laughs> So, so I certainly don't measure it against some, you know, benchmark of mass sales or anything. Um, in a way, success is the first time you write something and it moves. For me as a writer, the first time you write something that moves somebody else. Um, the first time you get published. You know, I, I remember that surge of bliss when I was about um, maybe 11. I got a poem published in a magazine, you know. Um, a really uncool religious magazine called Kairos that had a column for poems by children. So when it turned up my post and I saw my poem published, you know, that, that surge of pleasure, it's hard for anything to match it now. You know? <laughs> um, and then I suppose being able to make a living as a writer, even though it's not purely based on merit, as I say, it's based on all sorts of, you know, accidental factors like where your sales are. Um, that felt really good too. The first time I was able to say, yes, I'm a writer, this is what I do. Um, and since then... I wouldn't say room feels utterly different to anything else. Um, it's it's all just been a, a sort of a widening of the circle of who I reach, I suppose. So that feels great. Um, certainly, if I if I went back to my previous levels of obscurity, I would probably miss this. But it doesn't feel like a whole other thing. I mean, basically being able to write my books and and my, my plays and have them move people, you know, to see people, to hear people around me laughing and responding and shaken by what I write, um, that is just such a thrill. So for me, that's that's how I count it. It's, it's certainly not by figures. Emma Donahue, I'm going to leave it there. We're going to leave this room. It has been a pleasure. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye-bye.